Blackbird episode number 45. My name is James, and today I am excited to bring to you a conversation that I had with Matt Erickson and LB Muniz. Of course, you'll remember LB from his couple of appearances on this show, including just recently on episode number 40. And Matt, you will know from the Kingpilled podcast on YouTube, and he's also the co-host of the Wealth, Power, and Influence podcast with Jason Stapleton. When LB was on the show just a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about Matt and his wealth, power, and influence focus and his sort of anti-politics stance. And of course, as a recovering agorist myself, I'm very sympathetic to this way of thinking. However, LB and I both are members of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus, and so we have some differences with Matt. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And I think we're all going to get a lot out of it. Before we get into the conversation, though, let me tell you once again about RU Texas. As you know, Thad Russell is the founder of Renegade University, and periodically he hosts these weekend-long events. The next one was supposed to be taking place this past spring, but thanks to COVID and the mayor of Lockhart, Texas, we were unable to have it take place. So it was rescheduled for October, and it's going to be huge. We're all going to gather at Buck Johnson's house down in Lockhart, Texas, which is just outside of Austin. And we are going to hear not only from Thad, but also from the great Scott Horton, Deirdre McCloskey, the economic historian, Cody Wilson, an anarchist philosopher and all-around renegade, Hotep Jesus, and Jack the Perfume Nationalist, who is a podcaster you might not be familiar with, but you will be by the end of this weekend. And actually, he is going to be on the show here in a couple of episodes. The VIP packages sold out, but Thad and Buck decided that they were going to open up a couple more VIP spots. So if you head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash RUTexas right now, you might be able to get your hands on one. Otherwise, there are plenty of general admission tickets, which don't get you the VIP dinner on Friday night, but you'll still be able to get into the Saturday and Sunday events with all of the guests that I listed before. However, having experienced one of Thad's weekend events, the VIP package is where it's at. So you do definitely want to try to get that VIP package. So once again, head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash RUTexas to get your tickets today, and I will see you in Lockhart. And with that, here is my conversation with Matt Erickson and L.B. Muniz. This is probably a good way to transition into this podcast episode. I used to listen to Jason Stapleton religiously until he got into like an ANCAP versus minarchist debate with somebody. And I was such a tribal ANCAP that I just abandoned Jason Stapleton from then on. That was a lot of people. We we dumped, we dumped probably at least half, maybe, maybe three quarters of the audience. And and it was deliberate. It was intentional. Uh It was a conscious choice. There was a it was an audience that that he didn't want to talk to anymore. And and I wasn't completely on board with it when when he did it. I but I I understood why and I it didn't I didn't it didn't like hurt my feelings or anything. I I was just like, eh, I don't know if this is going to be if this is going to be um have the effect that you think it is. And I was wrong. I was I was completely wrong cuz uh we we dumped that the basically the the people who just want to sit around and bitch about the state all day. Mm-hmm. Those were the people that we that we dumped away from us. And I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of people, a lot of well-meaning people who went along with them, but it's kind of like, if, if we had to dump those to get, get rid of the, the, 
the specific target group we were trying to get rid of, then you know, so be it. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a conscious decision and we're very, very glad that we did. And because of that, we, it's made it number one, it's made just doing the show just more fun. It's, it's just generally speaking, it's just more positive. It's uh, we get to talk about more stuff um, because, and really the, the the content of the show hasn't changed that much. No, it really hasn't. There was some like in the beginning you got, you know, like before you guys really got your feet wet going from the five day drive by news show to a three a day, mm-hmm. kind of a little bit more of a zoom out thing, but otherwise, yeah, it pretty much all stayed the same. Yeah, it was, yeah. we we've added additional content on top of what that was there before but it's it's really largely stayed the same. And so then it's funny now seeing people who are, they're not doing the exact same thing as us, but they're coming uh, sort of the, to the same conclusion that there has to be something beyond libertarianism. That yeah. you, you, yeah. you, libertarianism is half the picture. You need to fill it out with something else. I've I, always, uh, I called it beyond politics, but I think beyond libertarianism works as well. I've always kind of uh, made fun of myself, I guess, for switching focuses so much, but I've noticed that there's always been kind of an oscillation in my podcast listening. I go from entrepreneurship to libertarianism, back to entrepreneurship, back to libertarianism. Every so often I'll throw in like John McWhorter or something like that that's completely off the beaten path, but those are the two areas of focus. And Matt, you and Jason kind of merge those two together and in sort of a synergistic way, yeah, it was a uh, the the thought that kind of occurred to us was it was it was a kind of building off the idea that politics is downstream from culture, mm-hmm. but uh, we, then we we kind of reasoned to that well, okay, well where does culture come from? What creates a culture? How does a culture develop? Because if this is the thing that determines our politics, it's pretty important. We we need to have an understanding of of where it comes from, and in, in part we kind of realized we don't really have a, a totally clear answer to that. We have ideas. We have uh, suggestions maybe, but we don't have a really clear picture of, of where they come from. And then even worse, everyone who was talking about liberty didn't seem to have an, any of a better idea than we did. And to some extent, it was just exasperation with the subjects. And we were just like, you know what? We want to talk about something that we can control. And it's not that we don't care about liberty anymore. It's that we're not gonna, we don't want to sit around complaining about the fact that we don't have any. We want to go out and create it. We're going to go create our own. So we're like, well, where does liberty come from? Liberty comes from the ability to control yourself, the ability to control what you do, where you go, what, what you do with your time, and you know how much of your, of your income you retain is ultimately going to be d- determined by whoever has the power to determine people's incomes, to determine what the tax level is going to be. That's ultimately going to be determined by the people who have power and money. So if you, there's, there's kind of two avenues here. One is just, we just want to focus on the stuff that we can control and the politics is going to take a back seat. We just want to focus on making ourselves wealthy and not just in terms of money because wealth isn't, a, isn't, a, isn't purely financial. Wealth is, is physical. It's social. It's, uh, there's, there's, there, Jason did an email this morning about the four different kinds of wealth. And there was, I can't remember, I think there was financial, physical, social, and one other one. I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was like time. Like the ability to um, dictate when you work, that's a form of wealth. If you get to control that, you get to determine that. So liberty is ultimately just an outworking of that. You know, he who has the most liberty is he who has the most control over his own life and and is able to dictate um, to the largest extent what he does with his life. So then when you begin with that concept, then there's something about 
about truth that when you encounter it, it doesn't matter what your intention is with it. It's going to take you in a direction. And it just so happens that this idea is so true that when you begin to apply it, it doesn't matter what your political intent is in applying that idea. It's going to improve your political standing no matter what. So the people who have more wealth and more uh, capacity for moving around, that's where you get the idea of nomadic wealth, the ability to take that wealth mobily and go anywhere with it. Those are the people who, who ultimately are driving the rest of, of society. Those are the people who are at the forefront of innovation, which is then ultimately the people who are driving the culture. So uh, it's like we, we didn't stop caring about, the, caring about the political side of things. We didn't stop caring about the values of liberty. It's that we went a layer deeper to the, the substrate where those sorts of things are actually determined. LB, you uh, recently, so we, we just talked like a couple of weeks ago about mm-hmm. uh, a piece that you wrote sort of in response to and mostly in agreement with Matt's thesis, which I think you, you laid it out pretty well now, Matt. Obviously, we're going we're gonna to dig into it a little bit over the next hour or so. But LB, can you kind of, I guess, rehash what we talked about on episode 40? I think some of the things, some of the through lines and the trends that I'm seeing right now, the, the, main, the main thrust of my piece, my thesis, was pointing out the fact that the reason why the one-minute clip that went viral of that conversation where Matt says, uh, where Matt says you don't want to be taxed, it's not that you don't want to be taxed, it's that you, you, know, you want more money, mm-hmm. right? What that did was that brushed up against a very deep-seated piece of libertarian dogma, right? That dogma being taxation is theft. And rather than when people approach something, when, we, when you don't approach something in terms of understanding, I don't always like to use the word truth. I'll talk about understanding and expression as kind of a means by which we can figure out what is. But, you know, that's, that's not an interesting conversation to be had. Trust me. It's more, it's, I would it's be just interested a, in it, but we don't have to do it now. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's one, it gets very esoteric and it kind of, it kind of comes down to definitional things and you won't find me to have a very firm position because that's kind of the idea of skepticism in a sense, epistemologically speaking. My point is this was brushing up against a piece of, of libertarian dogma, taxation being theft. When in every other context, somebody who's a proponent of capitalism is going to talk about the fact that you should be able to build whatever kind of life you want for yourself. And part of that is building wealth in the way that Matt's talking about. It's not a, what's, what's fascinating is the way people who have access to, right? Like they claim allegiance, they claim fealty, if you will, to something like the Austrian school of economics and to free market capitalism. But in the same breath, they'll, they'll condemn somebody for saying you should go out there and make more money because I don't want to be taxed too because it's immoral in wars. And again, that's where it's not a question of, it's not a question of the immorality of war in this context. It's what do you do in the face of, Okay, so we, you believe that the government is an evil institution. What do you actually do in the face of evil? Do you acquiesce? Do you do nothing? Or do you try to make good, right? Do you try to make something of yourself and to make your life something worth having and worth living? And I recorded with Jose Gallas on uh, last night, actually. But, you know, I've really been focused recently on how many people prefer to live their lives stoking Dis- malcontent, discontent, anger, angst, anxiety, like people literally feed off of it. They live off of it. Social media reinforces this, especially a platform like Facebook. Twitter does a little bit, but a lot, most of us are playing a game mm-hmm. on Twitter. 
at this point. And then the people who aren't playing a game are the ones that you dunk on and that you kind of say, ha ha, look at this idiot person. But the point is those people themselves are like, like, why, if you hate what we're t- saying so much, why are you exposing yourself to this? Like it's at the end of the day, as, 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 as amazingly brilliant as I think we all are in this space right now, we're kind of inconsequential at this point, you know, like that, like nobody's the test to which any of us have anything to say will be determined in a hundred years. So why don't you go and make yourself happy? No, instead you're going to choose to take exception to something that's being said. And moreover, you're again, you're, you're contradicting yourself because on the one hand, we want to build wealth. We want, we want people to succeed. We want people to be free. But on the other hand, because you didn't say taxation is theft in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit beforehand, (laughs) we couldn't actually have the conversation. And that's why I call it dogma. And that's why I put inquiry before dogma because I don't enjoy thinking in such a static way. And in fact, again, I'm, I'm more interested in how the whole picture fits together. Mm-hmm. Matt, anything to add to that? That was fantastic. That was basically exactly my intent with mm-hmm. that with that little mini rant that I went on there. It was, I, I knew full well that I was going to trigger people, but I, I, I wanted to because... I, I, I want to break people out of uh, like rigid ways of thinking. I want, uh, I, I'm, I'm like perpetually on this journey of constantly questioning my own presuppositions and, and doubting my own perspective and, and, and being keenly aware of what I don't know. And that position drives me to be very suspicious of of dogma, dogma being expressed in this sense. So my goal was to, to kind of rattle people out of that because the best that like for the person who's able to, who's willing to understand the type of, when, when I go out into a conversation, my goal isn't to, to talk to my, my goal isn't to persuade everyone. My goal is to talk to the people who are listening. I want to find the people who, who to, to make it woo-woo, the people who are on like my same energy level. I'm trying to find people who, where, where our energy aligns who will connect with what I'm saying when I say it and how I say it. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, to get the attention of people like that. To get atten- the attention of people like that, you have to break up the way that they're like we, we get in patterns of the way that we just think. We always, I, I compare it to uh, getting onto the top of a ski hill or snowboarding as the case may be. And, and then moving down the, down the trails, you get these predefined trails where it's almost like when you get to the top of the, of the lift and you, you come off the chair, your ski or snowboard will naturally follow specific, specific paths. And that's kind of the way that our thoughts tend to go. And so I, what I want to do is periodically break myself out of those those standard trains of thought and take a different trail and then see what kind of picture that gives me of the rest of the mountain. And so the way that, so to, to get people broken out of those chains of thoughts, you have to say something that's kind of, that shocks them or that makes them stop and think it freezes that thinking process and they have to kind of evaluate what you're saying. So by, by presenting as, as an ANCAP, as a, a libertarian, as someone who values these principles but then saying something that strikes right at the core of their dogma that creates a a, a discordance that makes that gets that makes people stop and think. So that was my that was my goal going into that. And from there, I knew that the majority of people were just going to be triggered and they weren't going to. Um, I didn't expect it to obviously be a huge a huge deal like it was. I didn't expect that specific <laughs> line to get people. I was speaking a little bit extemporaneously, but that yeah. was my that was the 
the character I was inhabiting as I was talking. And so my goal was to get the attention of the people who are going to stop and say, okay, well, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? Because that, it, it, that seems too simple. That seems too uh, naive or childish. And so it gets, it, you know, I, I wanted to get someone's attention so that then I could try to get them thinking a layer deeper than they usually do or go a layer behind where they usually go to the actual, as, as LB pointed out in his last interview, his last conversation with you, nobody is born with the sense taxation is theft. Mm. Nobody would tell you that right away. They, what happens is they get their first paycheck and they're sitting there dreaming of how much the check is going to be. They're thinking about, you know, they've spent the entire paycheck before they even got it. They've got it all the way down to the penny. They know exactly, they've done that math so many times to know exactly how much money is coming. And they get it and there's way less. And they're like, what the, what? They get all pissed off. That sense is not because taxation is theft and because someone's using their money to bomb kids in Yemen. That's not a rationalization that happens there in the moment. What happens is they're like, I want my fucking money. Who took this money? And someone comes along to them and says, hey, did you know taxation is theft? And actually, not only is taxation theft, but they're taking your money and they're using it for bombing kids in Yemen. And then you're like, yeah, hell yeah, taxation is theft. So you didn't arrive at taxation is theft as like an axiom of your world. You were, you were coached into thinking and saying that. Someone made that case to you. You were persuaded by that person. And now you're carrying the flag for that person. And I think if you don't realize that, if you don't realize the fact that human beings make decisions emotionally at the subconscious level first, they make that decision there. It happens subconsciously. And then retroactively, post hoc, they develop a rationalization for why they made that decision. And this can, this can happen at, at very high-level decision-making. Ultimately, when, when, that, when you make that decision, the decision was made before you made the decision. Your conscious self went with your subconscious sense. Yeah. And if you're not aware of that process, you'll delude yourself into thinking, well, I'm just a rational being. I'm a, I'm, I'm a rationally self-interested person who makes rational, log- makes rational decisions based upon on logical deductions. Of, of mine, of my own. And that's not how we are. Human beings are not like that. Human beings are incredibly cult-like and very given over to emotional decision-making. And they think as a hive mind. Human beings don't think as individuals. They think as a member of a collective. And this triggers, this, this saying this will trigger libertarian uh, inclined people because they've got a dogma around individualism and collectivism. Mm. Collectivism is Satan. Individualism is Jesus. And we must shun collectivism with everything that we do. That is, that, that's a, that is a dogma. And it, it ignores a fundamental aspect of human psychology, which is mimetic theory. The theory of, of mimetic desire from Girard is, is one of the best um, like proofs or, 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 or developments of that idea. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, human beings no matter how individualist you might think you are, ultimately, at the base level, you function as a part of groups and you identify yourself. This is the paradox of identity, that you identify yourself as a member of a group. There's a, that's a paradox. You're saying, here is my singular individual identity. 
I'm a member of all these other people with this other individual identity. So when you think of people with this individual singular identity, you should think of me. That there's, you're, you're collectivizing your identity. So this is where I, I'm, my goal is to try to get libertarians thinking about these issues on this level. Because what happens at the political level is a consequence of whatever happens on this level, on this deeper socio, sociological, anthropological, ultimately religious level. That's what's going to drive the, the politics. So if you don't address this, you'll never address that. Well, and particularly libertarianism, you know, was sort of the apotheosis of the individualist modernist age. I mean, right now we have, we have I think, fully transitioned and are probably on our way out of the postmodern age. Yeah. Um, and so we're like, we're like full on collectivist now. We, we meaning like society. Um, and so libertarians are like really reacting against that right now. Um, in some ways it's healthy. Like the agorists are really, really focusing on building communities. Um, John Bush has his Freedom Cells network. Um, and, you know, for me, like that's one of the biggest reasons that I still, or not even still, but like rejoined the LP. Um, for me, it's a, it's a community building thing. It's not, I, I don't see it as a way to, achieve political power. And I've actually got it, I've gotten into arguments with the, with the chair of my state party because I, 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 don't, I don't see electoral politics as a solution and I certainly mm. don't see the LP as a means of achieving electoral power. Um, LB, did you, did you have anything to add? Uh, no, I love hearing my conceptions being brought to the fore. Uh, you know, like paradox of identity is something that I've been working on and like really pondering myself for for years and it goes one step beyond what Matt was talking about too because yes we're in, we're, we're inherently putting ourselves into these collective groups that's natural we are we evolve in we evolve in groups i was just rereading human act like uh, the methodological individualism section of human action because i'm writing a response to popular liberty just to kind of create a new level of dialogue mm -hmm. to this conversation that's being had right now and you know mises mises brings that up as well so it's 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 right there in the Bible if you want it. It's that we're all that we're all there in groups. But it goes one step further than what Matt was talking about, which is also that I can ascribe all of these positive attributes to the school of thought, to the ideology that I bring that I consider part of my identity. And these there's a myriad of these identities that we all participate in at multiple times, uh, or, or rather simultaneously. But then other people can ascribe either entirely negative things to that to that identity, or moreover, they could ascribe all the positive things, uh, entirely different positive things, and still call themselves that. And for better or worse, libertarianism is a fantastic microcosm of the, I think, the broader, uh, of what we see manifested in politics across a broader scale. It really is taking a certain temperament, a psychological temperament that is created biologically, genetically, before you're even born into the world, that, that you're kind of pre-suited to be amenable to these types of ideas and we see this stuff and we see this manifested we see this manifested in something like the current struggle over lp politics or even just the constant back and forth on twitter that that we see that we see consistently yet we all call ourselves libertarianism let's take it one step further it's also the one thing that everybody in washington dc in conservative inc and the corporate press they will both simultaneously like they'll 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 call to it in particular this word libertarianism they'll say like well you know ben shapiro will say i'm libertarian on drug policy yeah. right but we got to go by Yemen, but he's libertarian on drug policy. You'll see the progressives talk about, especially if you enter their space at all, the progressives will start talking about libertarianism in a certain sense. So it's even, so it's even more than that, where it's like 
literally everybody's saying that we're the most powerful and yet the least powerful people, right? The Koch brothers are supposed to be this representation of libertarianism and our Koch brother, I should say right now. And really the Koch brothers is just a network of really, really wealthy people who donate millions of dollars to indoctrinate a bunch of young kids into a certain set of beliefs Mm -hmm. and in general beliefs that I agree with, with, you know, maybe some added corporate critique in there. That I've really, you know, that that I think we've all incorporated in a post twenty sixteen and certainly a post twenty twenty world. This is what I believe to be a manifestation of the fact that libertarianism has no clear praxis, and because of that, no one has any idea what to associate libertarianism with in the real world. So they'll it becomes an empty suit that anybody can wear, because there's no clear praxis. There's no way to port that from from your mind into reality, anybody is going to, is is either going to adopt the term for themselves to have all the good parts of it and none of the bad parts. They're going to redefine it, which is kind of the same thing, or they're going to imbue it with all of the bad things. So they're going to say libertarianism is equal to white supremacy, for example, or, you know, libertarianism is equal to... (laughs) I won't go on a second date with you. Sorry, still bitter about this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or it's, uh, you know, libertarianism is, uh, you know, whatever, Liber- like libertarianism is domestic terrorism. It's, it's, you know, because there is no conceptualization of what it means to be a libertarian, the term is ultimately worse than useless. And the, the ideology itself, without that practice, without that praxis, is, uh, um, be- actually becomes a weapon to be used against you. As, as a libertarian, using it and behaving as a libertarian. It's effectively, it's effectively political pacifism in practice. Yeah. I've been thinking about how to answer this question of why, why is there no clear idea of libertarian praxis? I would actually argue there is, and, it's, and it is exactly the path that you and Jason have taken over the last few years in the, in the community that you're trying to build. It, if you're actually talking about how you're going to apply ideas in real life, it's like, well build the best life you can for yourself, right? That's the ultimate individualist capitalist idea. You know, we can, I don't, we don't need to get sidetracked into a conversation of individualism just yet because, and I I was, I was thinking about why, well, okay. Libertarianism was, you know, how does the story go? Libertarianism was eight people in a room with Murray Rothbard 50 years ago, right? Or, Or 60 years ago, whatever it would be now. And it was just a few people, and he was bringing these ideas to. He was bringing these ideas out. We were deve- we were further developing, you know, the what's what's now called the Austrian School of Economics. And who were the people he was talking to? He was talking to a bunch of other professors and people like that in in academia. The way the country the way the country was then, and up until very recently, you know, academia was the only place in which these ideas lived. And it kind of and and like the university. I haven't written this out yet, but like basically the university has, had, has a couple of things going for it, or it had historically speaking. It was a safe place that you could go where they had all the books and you could spend all your time there. But as we've seen with some of the, uh, well, as we've seen with people like Jordan Peterson, like Heather Hine and Brett Weinstein, like Thaddeus Russell is, it's also a bit of a golden, a golden prison, if you will. It's, 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 it also is kind of like, well, you can do all the radical ideal, ideation that you want. You can do whatever you want, but you just like, you can't step out of line. Cause if you step out of line, we're going to kick you out of the university. So it's also, it's this necessary, like it castrates ideas necessarily, this academic environment. What we've witnessed 
as the university system in the United States has really broken down because of the massive debt that they that they put on their students, the ideological possession of the institutions, the fact that all the the, the, the ideological possession in question is a completely morally bankrupt ideology for the most part. Where we've now seen this move into a broader space where people like us are having this conversation who many would argue have no business having an academic discussion despite what despite what we've read because we don't have the credential. We're not we're not approved for having these kinds of conversations. It's all well and good, right? It's all well and good in good times for you to think about the ideas in the world that you would want to envision. When things start to get bad, I think everybody experienced this last year with the massive government lockdowns is we had hard times. You might've been out of work, but if you were working like I was, it was not easy to get people to pick up the phone because nobody was there, nobody was buying, nobody was doing anything. And yet we're still supposed to try and make money, right? Because you have to put food on the table and, you know, and, and uh, you're not just going to lay people off. And this is beside the point of what the government was, that the government was pumping money to. It's easy to make money in good times. It's hard to make money in bad times. And the same thing goes for ideas. It's very easy when we're sitting in a university setting, which is where most of us you know, learned these ideas was either when we were actively in university or around that age, you grow up after a while and you kind of move away from, oh, my idealistic youth, like, yeah, you, libertarianism is great, but I live in Texas, so I'll just vote for the Republicans now, right? Or I live in a state like Illinois, so I'm just not going to even pretend to care about politics because God help me, these people are awful. Like, that was kind of a natural course. But what do we have now? We have the internet. We have Twitter. We have the ability to make friendships that exist over space and time in a way that could never exist. And ideas have a, have, have a life unto themselves that could never have existed before the internet. And so we now have this community of people who, again, all call themselves libertarianism. And push came to shove last year. All of the worst things that we could have predicted came true and are still coming true. And there is met, there's much more to come right? As, as, as I think all of us know well, and hopefully the people listening understand too. And that's where we see this, okay, what, what people are saying is that we need the praxis, we need the application of these ideas, and we need to figure out ways, we need to figure out ways that they can actually work. And what I don't like, and I think some of this is inevitable, given just personality differences and kind of the way people approach things. What I don't like is a lot of the division that seems to be that that, that is sort of happening amongst certain camps. Right. I don't think we need another branching off of of, you know, the the reason the Cato crowd and the Mises crowd. I don't think that's necessary, nor do I think it's wise, considering, again, the stuff that's coming next. We're such a why should we try and alienate more people? That doesn't mean that Matt was wrong to say what he said, because he was completely right. And, and, and exactly that you need to kind of shake people out of their slumber and be like, hey, dude, like push is coming to shove. What do you what are you here to do? And what we've seen is a lot of people are very willing to bury their heads in the sand. We're seeing that very that people are very willing to follow the herd that's in front of them because we are herd creatures. What I'm arguing for anybody who will listen is that it's time for us to it's time for you to find your herd. Like it, it, it is this idea you guys put it in terms of collectivism. You do have to find your herd. You have to be intentional with the people that you that you associate yourself with, because again, bad times are coming. Like, you know, it, it is, we are coming very close to literal papers, please. And, and in a very real, in a much realer way than I think, than I think any of us would care to admit. And I would argue that that sort of papers, please situation is, uh, is probably much worse than past papers, please situations, because it's going to be much harder to avoid. It's going to be much harder to, to get, it's not like you can just get yourself to a boat and 
escape to a different country and then all's well. Part of the the the, the like the Faustian bargain of a a global technocracy is that everything being connected is great for this like connecting with ideas across the internet and meeting people who would think like you that you otherwise never would have. But the the downside of it is that it's now that much harder to escape or to relocate yourself. It's raised the the stakes and it's it's made that significantly more difficult. Now, again, that, that goes back to the wealth, power, and influence idea. But I, I agree with everything that you said there. One point I would make is you said you didn't like the division or the splintering or the, you know, the breakdown between reason and Cato, that sort of thing. But then you, you followed that up with that people need to find their own herds. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, I don't have a strong position on this one way or the other. The division doesn't upset me and it also doesn't, uh, I don't, I don't desire it necessarily, but I think, I think it's natural, but I think there's a case to be made that when the time comes or when the times come, you will in large part be determined by the company that you keep, whether that's in your own behavior and just being kind of naturally assuming the characteristics of the people that you're around the most, or in from the other side, being identified with and connected with, with those sorts of people. And historically, in revolutionary type moments where there's sudden rapid changes of violent chaos, the people who tried to bridge the gap between the two sides and tried to say, hey, wait, no, we're friends with everybody. Those are often the people that get the firing squad first. Yeah. Those are the ones who go up against the wall first. So those on top of the those on top of the fence are just as likely to be shot by their allies as the ones they might not yet despise. So being uncaring and choose, way. if not for me, then for you. Brilliant way of framing it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I think that part of finding your herd also means driving away certain types of people you don't want to be affiliated with, you don't want to be associated with certain types of people, which gets to some of the pragmatic arguments that that uh, that I have against the whole LPMC approach is that you're dragging yourself into the eye of Sauron at what cost? At what, you know, at what cost, at what benefit? If you just do a, a cost-benefit analysis of it. That's what's one major part of it is that now you're positioning yourself as one of these people who uh, isn't trying to bridge the gap necessarily, although that's what a lot of the rhetoric is that, you know, actually we're the best part of both of you guys, which isn't the libertarian message and shouldn't be the libertarian message. But yeah, and I don't know how much we want to litigate the whole, you know, is the LPMC worth it? I'm going to be doing an interview or doing like a debate with, uh, with, uh, I just, I feel like a dick. I just completely forgot her name. Angela. Angela, yes, Angela McArdle, um, on uh, Lines of Liberty with uh, with Mark Clare here next month. So we're going to be debating. Uh, the, I think the premise that we settled on was: uh, Do we need another Ron Paul revolution? Um, that'll be the the subject oh. that we're debating. Um, so I don't know how much you guys wanted to get into that subject here, but I would not take the other <laughs> side of that debate. <laughs> <laughs> I volunteered it. <laughs> would you not take the other side of the debate because you don't believe it, or because it's Matt that you would be debating against? No, I could do fine against Matt. I'm just not going to take a losing side of a debate. Like I think, I think to make the argument that I think inevitably, if you're if you're going to appeal to the past, like you're you're going to um, just just in the, in terms of a debate, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure, right? Because and and for that specific of a thing where it's like, okay, this is the Ron Paul revolution. It's like, well, okay, but like, what 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 are we doing now? Because we tried that once before, which I do agree, and and I think so. 
just a, a quick background because this might be interesting to the people at home and then but also to Matt is like I've never identified as an ANCAP ever in my life. Um, I've always I kind of found skepticism as a school as a home before I found libertarianism. And so I've I always kind of saw like minarchy and anarchy, like what the hell does it matter? This like we're in the state of the world as we are now. We gotta move. I'm, I like to say I'm directional, I'm not destinational. I'm about how we move mm. in a direction as opposed to like where we're where we're necessarily going to end up. But so I, I never I've never really like I've never identified as an ANCAP. Moreover, Ron Paul isn't the one who brought me in. In fact, I was the guy in 2012 who was like, yeah, you know, Ron Paul might have some good ideas, but we all got to get behind Mitt Romney because Mitt Romney is going to be the one that saves us from the socialist Obama. Like, you know, I've come oh, a long you, way. You I've come a long guy. way in this time. In this time. What's that? I said, oh, you were that guy. I was that guy because I thought that was because I thought that was the part I was supposed to play. You see, I thought I, I, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew the role I was supposed to take on in, in, during that election cycle. And now I just don't want to take on those kinds of roles. It's um, yeah, I don't I don't know that I'm the best person to, to litigate to litigate it either. I, I see it as um, I've, I would say I've met a lot of really nice people, really nice guys and girls through the through, like through organizing with the LPMC. I would like to think that there's some potential payoff later on in certain states that could happen. I think, again, kind of alluding to before, I'm in a state like Illinois where, you know, it's just such an uphill battle. And if I'm being honest, I'm not really tied to the land, as it were. Like, I've lived in Illinois my whole life, but I don't really identify with any city the way that I would want to, like, get involved in my own way. I kind of live a bit of a nomadic existence as it is. I travel like 4,000 miles a month. Like, you know, like I'm recording this in a hotel right now. So I kind of have always, and I, I moved a lot growing up. I, I bounced around a lot. My parents were divorced. I switched houses every three days. So I've never really like stayed still. So for me, I'm not, I'm not as tied to the land. So that like local approach, while I think it's the right way to go, it's not necessarily my long-term, my long-term avenue. But again, I'll reiterate, there's a lot of good people getting involved. I do think that, I do think it's, there's, um, there's wording caution appropriately, right? Like, and, and I've certainly done that with people that I've, that I've connected with inside of the group. And then there's also a question of how you dedicate your time. Like, for example, you know, I, I, try, to, I try to reiterate constantly, if you're a family man, your first priority needs to be to your family. Like, it's, there's yes. no apology needed if you couldn't make a meeting because your kid need, you know, because you got to take care of a newborn or you got to take, you know, you got to do dad stuff or mom stuff, right? And then secondly, would be, would be to say, like, if you're, not where you want to be in your career or anything like that. That's got to be your major focus. And there's no need to feel, and, and what I'm, this is why I'm probably not a good political operative is I don't want to manipulate you into saying like, no, dude, come on. I need you. Come on, man. I got, I need you to make five phone calls for me. Like that's what these political operatives always do at the end of the day is they're trying to get you to come in and dial phones or do something like that for it. It's just not, that's, that's not what I believe. And kind of maybe one of the reasons why I've, I've decided to kind of, you know, sign up with them for the time being. I, on the other hand, like am excited to go door knocking for our mayoral candidate. Uh, and like, I'm, I'm under no delusions that he's going to win. Like we've got a very cartelized political system here in the city of Minneapolis and, you know, and in the state for the most part of Minnesota. I mean, you know, we're the only, the only state that didn't vote for Reagan in 84. So, you know, we're the bluest of the blue states, <clears throat> but, uh, I don't know. Like, like I said before, I, I think of it almost like a hobby. What's wrong with having, what's wrong with having this as a hobby, Matt? Nothing. 
Nothing at all. I mean, I, th- I think there's pragmatic things potentially, but I don't have to see any problem with it as a, as a hobby specifically because you're, you're not under any illusions that it's going to make a difference. You're doing it for the sake of having conversations with people and entertaining yourself or, you know, whatever it is that motivates you to want to, to, to do it as a hobby. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with people doing it, period. They can do it if they want. What I'm trying to do is get the ear of the people who shouldn't be doing it mm-hmm. and who will one day regret doing it. Those are the ones that I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to. And, and ultimately, I just believe that it's a failed endeavor. And I believe that the, uh, the opportunity cost is, as you mentioned, for most people, the opportunity cost is probably significant and may not really be something that they're considering. And like you said, uh, LB, like if you're, if you're in a position where uh, your career isn't complete, like if you, as to use the wealth, power, and influence uh, words, if you don't control the source of your income and, you know, if you're in a position where you've got a lot of debt or you're in a, in a, in a tight financial spot or something like that, and you, you're like, I'm going to make a personal sacrifice and honestly, I should be doing something different. I should be, you know, paying off my debts or, or you know, saving up to move somewhere, or, you know, whatever. If you have some other personal thing that you should be focusing yourself on to take care of yourself first, but you're like, I'm going to put that stuff on hold. I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to sacrifice myself because this is a cause I believe in. Those are the people that I want to get a hold of. And it, honestly, those can be the hardest to get a hold of because they are already combating cognitive dissonance. In the fact that they've said, I should be doing this, but I'm making a value judgment to say this thing instead. That They have to take a lot of that on a, on a tremendous amount of faith. They have to really emotionally invest themselves in their position mm-hmm. to overcome the like risk, like warning bells in their head, like, ah, oh, you have this other thing that you should be focused on. So those are the people that I um, want to get the attention of. And then just kind of like you said, you want to. You're looking forward to going and doing, uh, uh, going door knocking because as a hobby, because it's fun. To me, I enjoy having these conversations as a as a hobby because it's fun. Um, so that those are those are kind of some of my positions on it. Yeah, I also see it as a networking opportunity. I guess. I mean, I'm building a brand, and like a you know, as much as I hate to brand myself as a libertarian podcaster, I mean, my audience is mostly libertarians, and so I guess that's part of my. I don't know, reason slash justification for continuing to be active in the libertarian community, quote unquote. But also, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I looked yesterday, I've been in the Mises Caucus Facebook group since day two of the Mises Caucus. Like Michael Heiss was there on August 1st and I was there on August 2nd of 2017. These are my friends. Like I don't have, you know, obviously nobody has libertarian friends in real life. (laughs) (laughs) I so do. like these are the, these are the people who I He's associate my cousin. with. What do you say? I do. He's my cousin. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> you claim him? <laughs> LB, you were talking earlier about personality types. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the personality type that is likely to become libertarian is equally as likely to become a member of the far left, and is equally as likely to become a traditionalist. Catholic slash Orthodox person. Mm. And the reason that I think that, first of all, is because you see a lot of autism in all three of those groups, um, like actual spectrum disorders. But also they're all just very dogmatic, which is something that you, you know, vehemently oppose, but also you recognize like that you're mm. you're a member of this dogmatic community. Yeah, it's it's something that um 
it's always been something that, that I've pushed the buttons of people on when I do get into conversations with them. You know, it's always fun when you run into an objectivist and you say that you're a skeptic. It's like they don't, <laughs> they don't understand how you could possibly be intelligent or possibly craft an argument. I think that what I would say is that dogmatism is inevitable mm-hmm. to a certain extent, right? Like what I say is kind of like inquiry before dogma. It's not that, it's not that I deny that dogma exists. It's that I understand that the dangers of taking something for to be true that isn't true, right? Because ultimately your faith has to go somewhere. You have to put your faith in something, someone, some idea. It's inevitable, right? This is, I, you know, I've, I've, I've schematized this in terms of in, in the enlightenment, they talked about instinct and reason. And if we just cast aside instinct and we focus on reason, then we can enlighten the entire world. And this is going to be the, the major scientific revolution. They were incorrect in that. They didn't understand the way the human mind works the way that we do now. They didn't have an evolutionary theory or anything like that. So I just, I just put forward that I think that we operate at the level of instinct, reason, and faith simultaneously in most situations. But instinct is like your emotions, it's your genetics, it's epigenetics, it's all these different things that are oftentimes subconscious, if not unconscious, especially if you don't take the time to really understand how, how we come to know things as a human being. Most people aren't interested in figuring out how we come to know things. They never have been. They never will be. Um, and that's okay, right? It's, it's completely acceptable if you're not interested in that. However, you have, but however what, I would, what I would ask for in return and never receive is that you also recognize that you, you know, should maybe listen to people who are interested in exploring things like how we come to know things. What you'll find is that people really don't like like it when you point out that they don't know things that you know, um, that, which is, I think, a lesson all of us have learned in our youth here, right? Uh, but it's like, it's something endemic to humanity. It's not unique. Like most of this stuff isn't unique to libertarianism. The last thing I am is a libertarian. There are so many more parts of my personality that were set, created, and done before I ever discovered the word libertarian, before I ever discovered the Austrian school of economics. And I am so grateful to have discovered these things because they have given me an insight into the world that I would not have received otherwise, right? That's not the point. The point is that you're created, you grow up, and then you kind of come upon these ideas, right? They're either given to you, right, in, in the way that you might be raised in a religion or, or a specific political idea, or just, you know, you're raised in the South, so you have more, you have a participation in Southern culture, or you're a New Yorker, or, or all these different, you know, we talked about culture before. And as far as I can schematize culture, I start at the individual and kind of work my way up. And again, my point is that we interact with all these levels of culture simultaneously in our everyday interactions. And that would start from like yourself, again, like in a biological sense, your family, your friend group, your vocation, your, your local, you know, your regional area that you grew up in, your society that's bound by some kind of a government, the broader civilization that might span across multiple governments and multiple different societies, the different languages that are spoken across but still have adherence to the same ideas. Like this is all really, really complicated stuff. And yet we all still can like talk and communicate and like have a life of one of one form or another. And that's like a pretty awesome thing. But it, again, like, you know, we're trying to figure out what is culture, where does it start? It's it's complicated. So let's work through and figure out the things that we need to go that, that we need to go and work through. Matt, you host a podcast called The King Pill and or is it King Pilled? King Pilled, yeah. Okay. So I hate the pills. Uh, red pill, blue pill are great. <laughs> They're the matrix and they are a way of identifying a person by the way they see the world as it is now. 
The black pill and white pill I hate. I think that the black pill is really just a myopic version of the white pill. Every black pill person I know uh, agrees that we're going to come out better after the horrible situation that we're going to be in soon. Every white Nihilism per- is boring. Yeah, every white pill person I know uh, understands that we're going to have to go through some shit before we get to their their happy state. So what is the king pill and why should I like it? <laughs> so it, it's kind of funny. The, the, the title for it came from a conversation that I was having with Stephen Messina, my, uh, the other guy who hosts it with me. I, I don't want to say my co-host because that makes it seem like, like I'm the host and he's the co-host. And really it's where the two of us are, or we do it together. So he's my, my co-host. So he, I don't remember exactly how the conversation was going, but we were, we were talking about these ideas, uh, the, the ideas that we talked about on the show. Um, we, we became friends because of, of reading Unqualified Reservations. And uh, I turned them on to I turned them on to, uh, to Moldbug, some videos on YouTube that were breaking down Moldbug. And, um, and it, it kind of blew his mind, like it did me when I first encountered him. And so then he and I were just chatting back and forth for a number of days about all these issues and some of the stuff that I was working through, trying to think through these philosophical issues. And he kept saying, you know, we need to start a podcast. We need to start doing this on a, on a, on a podcast so that other people can hear this stuff. And, uh, and so, so one day, basically what our, our conclusion was that, that monarchy is, is uh, the natural form of human social arrangement. That it's innate to human beings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we, we, I just one day just said, you know, we need to start this podcast so we can king pill these mofos. And, <laughs> uh, and, and so from there, he was just like, king pilled. There you go. There's the, there's the name of the show. So, so the idea of, of, of king pilled is, is for one, just to kind of get people's attention. But two, it's, it's this idea that, that monarchy is uh, inherent in human psychology. This is why it's born out in, um, in uh, the, the, the hero archetype. This is, uh, it's, it's every, like every natural system is, it tends toward monarchy. It tends toward, uh, the, the hero of the hero of the hero of the hero, the, the, the guy at the dominance hierarchy made up of all the dominance hierarchies. There's that, that, that essence that seems, uh, endemic to the, to the human mind. And, and it's borne out in what I would consider the fundamental human unit, which is the family, the father, the mother, and the child. And that that's a, that's like a fractal. It would be a fractal, I got myself back in the forwards here, fractal microcosm or fractal macrocosm of the, uh, of the, the, the nature of society. Society naturally has these monarchical elements. So if you've read any of, any of uh, you know, Moldbug or, or uh, Nick Land or, um, or even you, you can go back further than that, there's other, other, other authors who really elaborate on this. You're familiar with the monarchy idea, but, but we take it a little further and we, we, we see this parallel with Christianity then with Christ as the King of Kings. And both of us are kind of come to the table as sort of sympathetic to Christianity, but not necessarily devoutly Christian. I used to be, I was, I grew up very devout, but I, for the last 10 or 15 years, I've kind of drifted away from the church. And this was after going to uh, evangelism school and like giving Bible studies, going door to door, do like doing door knocking, doing Bible studies with people and taking people to evangelistic series, all this kind of stuff. That's how I grew up. Kind of drifted away from the church. And it was in kind of, it was recognizing this pattern that actually led me to look at the church again, to kind of look at it with new eyes. Like 
when the Bible describes Christ as the King of Kings, suddenly I was like, hmm, mm, that, has, that has new meaning to me with this understanding of the, the, the Moldbuggian case for, for monarchy or for you know, anybody else who's made the case. There's a number of other people who have made the same case. He's probably just the one that would be the most relevant to, to most of the people who will be listening to this podcast. So, so the king pill is, is, is really that, that monarchy is the natural state, the natural human social organization, and that this is a product of how we were created as um, by the king of kings. That might be like, you might say, like the working hypothesis of the, of the show. Is it different from the clear pill? Or did you guys just kind of come out with that at the, around the same time Yarvin was talking about clear pill? Um, I think we came out with it after he, I think he just was talking about the clear pill first. And I, to okay. my understanding, the clear pill is basically just accept reality for what it is. Just accept and, and don't fight the system because when you fight the yeah. system, you feed energy into it. Yep, that's, that's what, that's what uh, his basic thesis is. And for those who aren't familiar with Menchus Moldbug or Yarvin, Curtis Yarvin is sort of a political philosopher, so to speak. I mean, he's a software engineer by trade, but he's pretty brilliant politically, even if you don't necessarily buy everything he says. I'm certainly influenced by him heavily. I mean, I, you know, Matt, you and Jason have have been a big influence on me of late. However, I've been, listen, I've been reading Yarvin for the last year, and I would say that if what he predicts will come true comes true, which, you know, if you believe in like the cyclical, the cyclical nature of history, if you kind of believe in like the, even, even the linear, the linear structure of integral theory, which I've been, which I've been kind of delving into lately, I think he's probably right. He's a monarchist, but not in the sense that like he wants to bring back feudalism and, you know, the, the king ruling all that he surveys and all that he surveys is an entire continent. It's more like, you know, the, the size of a city or a county or a tribe. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a lot like the, the Native American tribes, really. It's privatizing the city. Yeah. Like that's, that's what, if you read his Patrick series, that's what he's describing. He's describing the private ownership of a city governed like a joint stock corporation, structured and governed like a joint stock corporation with a CEO and a board of directors. So when you boil it, I mean, it's really, it's really Hoppianism put more clearly than Democracy the God that Fails describes it. Is right. that right? Yeah, it's just kind of like a pragmatic justification for or depiction of, a, uh, of, of like a, a one possible form of, a, of a, like a Hoppian style government. That's really, that's what people see it and they're like, oh, monarchy, ah, oh, and they yeah. see this as like diametrically opposed to yeah. anarchy. But in reality, the two are, are very close to each other in the way they look in, if you take the theory of both of them. In practice, mm -hmm. they look very different. But the, the theory of them is very similar. It's just a one property owner that owns a whole bunch of land. And in, in reality, the way he structures it the the owners are actually shareholders the the shareholders of the company and so then the executor is uh, I can't remember the name he uses for it but the the CEO effectively the guy who has well this is where we get the term president power. from yeah right yeah the term president comes from from this kind of a corporate structure as well you mm -hmm. know the quest so this is I react negatively to the word monarchy still to this day I've listened to Hoppe I've listened to Yarvin. 
I won't deny some of like some, I'm not going to sit here and deny the logical arguments, but as I'm sitting listening to the, like the last couple minutes of conversation, the first thought is that this is exactly why I have a show. And these are the, exactly the kinds of conversations that I want to be having. The second parallel thought is, is it monarchy? Is monarchy the best word for what we're talking about here? And if so, can you tell me why briefly or, or, or like in, in some kind of a summary? Cause it's, well, because I've I've heard you know people you and other people argue elsewhere that it's not just monarchy, right? It's basically there's three types of government. Is is I don't know where the line comes from. There's monarchy, democracy, and oligarchy, but really there's only two because democracy never actually exists. There is there's something- a school of thought, by the way, that also says there's actually only one because monarchy never actually exists because ultimately the monarch is is governed yes. to a degree by. His which directors. is kind of why I'm, which is actually where, I, which is actually where I was going with this is that like, and I think, uh, I think it's Heraclitus talks about like, there's a natural progression to the state to, to, there's a natural progression to the state and you tend to move from a tier, like, what is it like a state of anarchy into a, into a monarchy and that, and that in turn goes into a democracy, which goes into an oligarchy, which oligarchy, which, which creates a state of anarchy, which then brings about the monarch again. If we look at, um, you know, the founding myth of Athens, this is because it's an interesting, it's an interesting one is I think the king, I'm not even going to pretend to remember the Greek king's name, but the point was there was a Greek king over Athens and he acquiesced authority to the people when it was his, when, when it was time for him to move on and he gave up power. And this is a very powerful myth. And uh, this is a very powerful myth about humankind. The American, uh, you know, in the aftermath of George Washington's death, Parson Weems wrote a book, The Life and Times of George Washington or something to that effect. And it, that's where we get all the myths about like he never told a lie, he chopped down a cherry tree, these types of things. And it was done precisely to, to capture this same idea of the myth is here was a man who could have been king, but chose instead to, to, to release power. So is there, I guess the question I would have is, if it's cyclical, then it's just a question of where you are in the cycle, right? So it's so I guess for me, from my perspective, and, and I'm happy to hear why I'm wrong, is I view the form of government accidental to the conversation that we're that we're kind of having. Mm-hmm. Especially if we're getting to a point where it's effectively privatized cities where you have a board of directors and a single CEO that is the one person responsible for things, and we don't see the bureaucratic bloat that seems to be uh, inevitable. But I would just back up that point, which is to say that there's a lot of bureaucratic bloat in large corporations. So even if you have a corporate structure, are we really escaping that kind of an idea? Yeah, it should be be clear. First of all, I almost said this when you first started talking, but the, the, the specific form of government that he describes in patchwork isn't... Mm-hmm. That's I don't advocate for that. I think it's an interesting curiosity. I think it's a it's an interesting proposal, and I want to see more people making proposals like that and thinking pragmatically about um, how you could solve this problem. I like to say that gov- the problem of government isn't an, an ethical or moral problem; it's an engineering problem because people respond to incentives, and if you can engineer incentives, you can engineer people's responses. Now, to me, I don't see this problem as solvable necessarily. I think it's, like you said before, directional rather than destinational. What I want to see is people innovating solutions. I want to see people innovating possibilities because I think as those possibilities are applied, it can move us in that direction. So to a a degree, my position on this is very similar to um, what a lot of libertarians' position is with with libertarianism, which is that we're not actually going to bring this about 
I just want to get people thinking and moving us that direction. And if we get to the point where we're arguing about how should we structure our monarchy, well, hey, that's great. To me, what's more interesting, to, that's kind of the hook of the show. And, uh, and we talk about that a lot for sure. But what's most interesting to me is the more of the personal application of it. So how do, how do I apply this understanding to my own life? And uh, first of all, in the whole, the whole concept of just like, like a very pragmatic sense, like becoming the king of your own life and, and, and treating your life as your, your, uh, your, your royal domain and, 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 and behaving over it as if you're a king who's trying to maximize the value of his kingdom. That's an interesting point to me. But even more so, you said, you talked about the, oh, so the, the, the king who, the, or the person who could have taken power, but he, he stepped down from it. Yeah. Um, I know there's the story of Cincinnatus in Rome, and that may have been what you were thinking of. The, the old man who was a farmer and he came back in, or maybe there might've been one in, in Greece too. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know my ancient history Athens, that well. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a uh, there's something to that. This idea of having someone who is the king who has all of this power but voluntarily puts themselves into a position with significantly less or even no power. Mm -hmm. And that actually, that drives very much at the Christian idea as well. Cause that's what leaving aside the, the relative truth or fiction of the story itself, of the actual events that's contained in the story. And that's where you get the, the Girardi and mimetic desire. This, the idea of the scapegoat, who um who comes in and 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 basically serves as the the thing that releases the tension in a conflict you have one mm. scapegoat who is sacrificed and the the christian aspect of that where you have the king the king of kings who is the scapegoat who is the one who is sacrificed there's a a thing that if you listen to david gornoski he's one of the best people to talk about this but he talks about how that act becoming a meme embedded in our consciousness it breaks the mimetic, the mimetic Girardian conflict. The the when when you embody that principle in your life, it's like a it's like a hack that breaks the the mimetic conflict. So that is where I see the show going. The show is an exploration, kind of. It's a it's a um, like my goal is like I said to get a hold of the people who are already thinking like this or thinking about this sort of thing the ones who are already interested in this kind of thing. My goal is to create a little echo chamber of people who are all kind of thinking and talking about these ideas. And I think the direction we're moving is more in the Christianity direction. I think that's where it seems very natural for this to, to go because ultimately politics and religion, as far as I can tell, are the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's the same software running on, the, on, on your computer. And it's just expressing itself in different ways. But ultimately, the two are always going to be united. The church is always going to function as a state of sorts. And a state will always create a church if there, or it will co-opt an existing one because the two are, 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 um, are just inevitably connected. I've had the thought. So, you know, as far as like where, where the name of my website comes from, it's to the answer to the inevitable question of why I'm, you know, why am I not one with the woke? It's, well, it's because I'm not, you know, I'm not woke. I've been awake. Like I haven't been asleep. Mm. I've been paying attention to these things for far longer than you have person who's just reposting something on Instagram. You are obviously correct because politics and religion have been intrinsically linked throughout all of human history. One thought that's interesting that occurred to me as it relates to what we kind of experience, and certainly this has been 
brought about by Molbug's conception of the cathedral, which is a Catholic, somebody who was raised Catholic, I kind of reacted against at first because I don't like things, you know, something as beautiful as a cathedral being associated with something as evil as, you know, like people interested in social control to further their power uh, for negative ends. But to the point is, how do you reverse, and this is a question to chew on, how do you reverse engineer a religion? What are the components that you would need? And certainly we've witnessed the stepping up of how like this reverse this this reverse engineered religion this consequence of the social gospel movement where we remove and you know and, and frankly i think this is a little bit of a danger of having religious conversations when you yourself aren't a religious adherent right if you don't consider yourself as part of it when you remove christ from the message of Christianity, what are you at? You know, there, there's a huge danger there because you're kind of removing the whole point and you can very easily forget the whole, uh, what, what you're supposed to do and in, in, in the consequence of that, if that's, if that's making sense. And we've witnessed what happens with that over a hundred years with the progressive movement, with the rise of the total state, with the rise mm-hmm. of the nation state. You know, we're about to have the Olympics. I guess, you know, I guess they're going on right now. The opening ceremonies are happening. The Olympics were a tribute to the gods of old, right? The city states would get together and they would and they would worship the gods and they would do they would engage in sport. Well, today we worship we do worship something. So we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping the nation state. What I think is unique about our times is that and this is where I think we we converge a lot more is I do believe that we are witnessing the end of the nation state. We are wit- we are we are I think it started but I think I think if history was going to put it anywhere it'll be probably like 2014 if I had to make a guess, but you'll you'll look back and you'll say 2014 is where things started to end. I mean, think about the fact that I mean like it, the cycle moves so fast that we don't really sit and ponder of it, but as I as I drive around the country and I just think there was an there was an autonomous zone that operated. There was a zone that said, we do not belong to the United States of America. And it was allowed to operate in multiple places for months, for months on end. Only in recent, that's it, man. It's over. The, 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 for whatever else you might say about the power that they can assert with technology, they can't assert that much power because stuff, because stuff like this is happening. And, and, and because stuff like, and we also see this in the flags that people fly. This is a, Again, I drive in small towns across America where you would have seen the red, white, and blue. You now see the black, white, and blue. You now see the thin blue line flag being flown. And in Chicago, you know, I'm, I'm, driving, I'm driving in a different neighborhood than, than I live in, and I see a flag. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You don't really see flags on, on cars in this area. Or if you do, it's a Puerto Rican flag or something. And, you know, the person, and, you know, no offense to Puerto Ricans. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't help where you're, where you're born. For reference, I'm, my family's Cuban, so that's where that joke comes from. Um, but you can't, but, but they, they turn. They turned and it was the pan. Sorry, they turned and it was the pan. I couldn't even help myself. They turned and it was the Pan-African uh, version of the American flag, right? Where you have mm. the the green, the black, and the red. It's over. Like it's all like the America that existed is already over. We're just li- like we're just living in a marriage that hasn't ended yet. We're just living in a broken marriage that is, that the people hate each other, and it and like we see this as libertarians, broadly speaking, people in this space, and it's becoming mainstream. And I think that's one of the things that I think is most exciting about having these kinds of conversations is that given that we are on the margin of, of political ideas is it's more than likely the best thing is going to come from us. 
So, but, but again, I think it's, it's an important point to reckon with. It's already over. I don't know if you could see me the, throughout that whole thing. I was nodding vigorously mm-hmm. because you, you just, uh, you just ignited a fire in my head. So there's so many points contained within that, that I want to ad- address as many of them as I can. I believe, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. I believe you're entirely correct that it, that it is over one thing that I that you said that I would I would modify slightly is yes, there is this is the worship of the nation state, but I would argue that it's the worship of what the nation state represents, which is the idealized conception of the self. Ultimately, the nation state is this is the end goal of liberalism. This is what happened with I, I have a structure, a historical structure that's built itself in my mind that I think ports that this this matches with really well. That from the time of Christ. So, if, if you read the book, read the book Dominion by Tom Holland. If you if you want to understand this current era, read the book Dominion by Tom Holland. He takes a, a a neutral, effectively neutral position on Christianity and just surveys the history of it. And he doesn't advocate for it or against it. He just evaluates it. And uh, he started as an atheist, and now he's much more of a um, like I think he's attending the Anglican Church now. He's he, it's 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 kind of made him more comfortable with with Christianity, because what he realizes is that we are all Christians. We are in every, in, in virtually every sense of the word that matters, we are Christians. We operate according to a Christian ethical system. The, the woke movement is a, a Protestant, is a sect of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. It affects, it, it, it acts as a, as a, a Christian sect. And it's, it's, it's a problem with traditional Americanism that it's in, at war with, which is another Protestant sect. It's problem with it is that it's not Christian enough. Look at all of these people who are downtrodden from your, right. your, you not being Christian enough. You haven't fulfilled. This is why you always get these atheists who want to talk to the Christians and tell the Christians how, what it means to be a Christian because mm-hmm. they are Christians in the, in, the, uh, in the anthropological sense. So we are all Christians. What happened is there's this parallel movement that is that has gone on. I said politics and religion are the same thing. There has been religious decentralization happening in uh, at the same time as political decentralization. Both movements have been driven by this same sentiment, which is this evolving awareness of the self. And I think my kind of working theory is that it reached its um, its apotheosis with Descartes saying, "I think, therefore, I am." Mm-hmm. Treating himself, and which really is actually a non sequitur, it is thinking happened, and also I am, or something to that effect. But but so anyway, so he begins with himself, and from there the liberal tradition has built itself on the idealized conception of like the like like individual with a capital I. Each one of us carries around this idea of the ideal individual that we match ourselves to. And legislative policy is all about socially engineering and crafting the ideal perfect human person. Like the the whole, the uh, development of the public school system was all about trying to create and, and whittle down the ideal person. And ultimately what it was, was a Christian nation operating according to Christian ethics, according to Christian metaphysics. It was that nation recreating God in the image of man. And placing, so it's taken the Christian superstructure and it's re, it reformed, the Reformation continued to the point where it reformed God right out of the church 
and needed to replace it with something. That's why Nietzsche said, we've killed God. What are we, like, what, what are yeah. we going to do now? You replace it with the God you wanted to have, which is ultimately yourself. And so mm -hmm. then when you get to this point where, where we're moving beyond the nation state, this isn't that we're becoming more free. Like Monica Perez said on Picanona's show, she said, um, when you tear down governments, local governments, you don't create Amkapistan, you create global government. The system itself, the, the bureaucracy itself is designed this way. The inefficiency is a feature, not a bug. The, the idea here is you, you alchemically weaponize um, opposition to yourself and turn it into more power, expand your power. So you have a, this bloated, corrupt, incompetent bureaucracy. That means we need more bureaucracy. That means we need more power. We need to create new uh, uh, institutions. The, the limited government notion has done this as well, where it said, oh, we can't give too much power to any individual body. So we have to create a new body. We have to create a new one and a new one and a new one and a new one. Until pretty soon you've got this massive, expansive, you know, multi-trillion dollar bureaucracy that was created in the name of limited government. So all of these things are all working to the point where what I've been forecasting, what I'm expecting is we're going to begin to hear rhetoric talking about why we cannot use the government anymore. That the government is, my guess is probably it's going to be something like it's taken over by white supremacists. This is why I'm actually starting to think that 2024 may be a Republican. Because mm. Well, because it, you, yeah, it fits the narrative better from that perspective, right? Exactly. You're on somebody Look, like Jim Jordan and yeah, yeah. They've taken over. They've taken over. We can't use, I mean, it's common knowledge that the corporations own the government. Like the government is just a tool being used by the, the millionaires and the billionaires. It, mm -hmm. The government is, is just a, it's, it, if the government wasn't there, it would be something else. It's, it's wealthy, powerful people using the means at their disposal to socially engineer and amass resources for themselves. And they're going to use whatever system is there to do that. So they've been using the state as a middleman. And what they're doing right now is they're evolving the middleman out and creating just the, all you have is the serfs and the global technocrats, which are going to continue to solve for one. They're going to continue to solve for the one at the top, which is the absolute conception of the ideal self. And they'll put a crown on him and they'll call him their king. That's the trend. That's the, the, the direction everything is moving toward. And libertarians are positioned to jump feet first into something like that. Yes, yes, finally, get the state out. That's what we've wanted all along. We've just been trying right. to get rid of the state. Well, all you did is you just removed any incentive to act like you have rights. There's no reason to go through all the rigmarole anymore. We're just going to have the ones in power, the global technocrats, just enforce their will and everyone will cheer it as they go. And there's no reason to bother with all these silly things like voting and all that stuff. That's just inefficient. We know what the outcome needs to be. We're fully self-actualized. We've realized the truth. We've created heaven on earth. We have our utopia. That's that's right. where we're headed. So let's but so let's ask the question: Why why would they switch from using government to corporations? Why 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 do you? I I have an answer for this, but I'm curious what your and what James's answer would be for this. Well, to me, it's because corporations aren't bound by nominally bound by the constitution. They're 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 private companies, bro. They can do what they want. It's a really good loophole for amassing power and influence. I mean, I just uh, I just tweeted out earlier from the from the LP of Minnesota account that Jeff Bezos, who just shot himself off on a rocket, became wealthy 
by being an entrepreneur, but he became filthy stinking rich by being the biggest government contractor this side of the defense industry. And he became influential by buying the chief propaganda outlet in Washington, D.C. And that's the consequence of the, this is, people don't want to hear this. That's the free market at work. That is how the market operates. The state exists because the market has clamored for one, because it was a, it's a pragmatic, useful tool at the time that it came into existence. But at the end of the day, you just have wealthy, powerful people who will use whatever institution they need to get what they, to get what they want and to accomplish their ends. And, but when you get to that level of person, they get interested in some seriously funky shit. Like they have very weird, right. weird interests because that level of wealth and power isn't good for your psychology. It does, it really, it, it, it perverts your mind. Yeah. Um, but if I could feed into your metaphor, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Um, sure. I, yes. would, I, I would answer that question. Can I, can I answer real quick? Yeah, I have, yeah, I have please, an actual yeah. answer. Yeah. Okay. My answer would be, I haven't, I haven't thought through that point. And that's a good question. And I'm about it. Just off the cuff, my answer would be that because it's the next natural step within the existing system, which is kind of what James was saying. Basically, it's a pragmatic tool. What better mm-hmm. way to completely take out your enemies than to use their own rhetoric against them? Like you said, you can, you can hollow out the libertarian, free market, conservative. What, you can hollow those ideas out and wear them as a suit. Yeah. And then your enemies no longer, what are they going to argue with their own, with their own rhetoric? It's mm-hmm. that, that's like seems to me like the ultimate trump card. Well, and if you if you think back to the '90s, you guys are a little bit younger than I am, but like I remember back when Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden had actual power and not just power on television. Bill Gates, who at the time was the Jeff Bezos of the world, was bending the knee, and you see that because like they split up Microsoft and he had to retire as CEO and become a philanthropist. He was still the world's richest man, but he was no longer an entrepreneur. Whereas Jeff Bezos now is, they like I said, he's, him, yeah. he's, a huge, he's a huge contractor with the government. And his space company, if Elon Musk thinks he's going to be supplying the International Space Station, he's got another thing coming. That, that's where Jeff Bezos is going to be. He's going to get those government contracts because he already has them. I think the reason why, they're, why, we, why we are witnessing the switch to corporate power is because they have to. It's not just that it's the next pragmatic step. I don't, I have, I, I kind of react against like a necessary telos to history a la Marx and Hegel and, you know, and, and, and a lot of other people in that space. But I think, it's, I think it's a question of they have to. I've been thinking a lot about diminishing returns, right? This is an economic principle that holds true to multiple areas of our life. It's kind of natural in the basic logical state of our minds. And so it makes they're not they're diminishing returns on they're diminishing returns on on your health, right? Like at a certain point, you get to be a certain age, you can't maintain a certain body mass that you want to. It's tough to stay, you know, it's tough to stay in shape. It's tough to keep your mind sharp, right? We see IQ dropping off after you know your mid. I think it's your mid thirties or forties. If you know, is when you start to see a gradual decline that kind of like keeps going into your um, into your later years, especially if you don't keep your mind sharp. What's what is there to say that we are not just witnessing in the natural the the natural diminishing returns of a global empire and that empire having lasted, you know, a hundred, eighty, a hundred or eighty years, take your pick. 
Um, certainly the financial order that created the global empire is a little over a hundred years old at this point. Uh, it, it, it's just, that's, that's kind of, that is how I view it is I think certainly what I witness when I look at the press and I look at the way people are being influenced is I, I don't think it's the case that we've all become magically smarter. I think, I do think it is the case that they've become more brazen mm -hmm. because in order to maintain the attention and the uh, and, and and the and the praise and the adulation and you know and having the people feeding them, the uh, putting their faith in them, in order to maintain the people who have their who have faith in the system, you have to go to increasingly um, draconian lengths, both in terms of your rhetoric and also in terms of the actions that you're taking. So for example, you know, it kind of seemed like we had a lull as it related to a very uh, pernicious program where people are going to be going door to door, as it were. There seemed to be a lull. Well, no, that's not the case because the government promised that, you know, July 4th was the deadline. July 4th was when we all knew that we had to go and we had to do the right thing by our country because this is what, this is what was supposed to be done. And Americans didn't do that. And we're just witnessing, we are witnessing the next step in that. But I do think the root of why has to do with they are trying to maintain. And by they, you know, you can refer to people in the government, corporations, people behind the scenes that are feeding the money into these, into these races that are actually trying to maintain this global system because they have the most to benefit from it. They, I think they are trying, it, it, it seems very obvious to me that they are pushing very, very hard. I mean, I think we all watched the clips on on Twitter, none of us watched it live, I'm sure, because we have better things to do, of Joe Biden on CNN yesterday. And just, I, it's, it's tough for me because I find it difficult to talk to, I, I find it more difficult to talk to normies ab about these sorts of subjects because I am worried about, because I know how I come off if you don't have a frame of reference for me and if you're not a part of these ideas. And so I'm not really interested in there even being a question in the mind of, Oh, I wonder what is LB one of those? Like I literally caught up with frat, like um old fraternity brothers called me on our founders day and they were kind of joking around and drinking, but they're like, yo, be be real, man. You're Q, right? You're Q. You're the one. You're the one that actually did it. <laughs> like it's all you. It's like, you know, I had the other instance that I told the story that I told on James' show of of like, you know, helping these girls get from one bar to another. And the worst thing they could think of in the world is that the guys that I was with were Republicans and conservatives. And are you conservative? It's like, God, I've spent 10 years of my life building this very interesting set of ideas, researching things. And yet this chick only knows Republicans and Democrats. And that's all. It was told to me by my brother recently that I should just try being liberal because it's more fun. As if... As if, if, as if if I had any chance of like having left-wing politics that I wouldn't have dove into it. For the love of God, I'd be a freaking killer in the democratic stage. Are you kidding me? Like this isn't even a question at this point. It's tough for me to recognize how the average person perceives somebody like Joe Biden because I see a 79-year-old man. But the nice side of that is I do think it is, you know, metaphorically speaking, the perfect embodiment of where we are in the cycle. And for a lot of people, especially the boomers, right? Because there's a huge generational aspect to all of the stuff that we're talking about here, right? Like we are bringing these ideas into a new generation. We are moving them forward. And this is the first time that the older generations are still alive to see it happening, right? And a lot of those older generations are still holding positions of power. So these are the things that we're contending with. And so many of these people, the boomer cons, as we call them, have, have conceptualized the United States as this thing that is eternal, 
right? It literally is the kingdom on earth to a lot of these people. You know, there, there are tons of problems with American Christianity that I don't feel that I'm the expert to get into it, but suffice to say, I think they exist. These, these people have all lost their faith and, and, we're witnessing, and we're witnessing the consequence of that. Again, like I said, that faith has to go somewhere. What I'm excited about is I think we're starting to build, I think we're actually starting to move forward into the building blocks of, of, what, of what is going to happen next. But the scary part is, 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 is the moments in between. And going back to the thing I said, because yes, obviously some people are going to get left behind. I'm not interested in bringing everybody. I only want to bring the people who don't want to get left behind. And I think one thing that's different about the approach that I take is um, where I, I'm kind of a little bit more of like, I guess, a medium or a guide of a kind where I try to walk through the ideas and like, okay, let's follow this logic as far as we can and in the hopes that people will actually start to see how the chains fit together, right? It's about orientation, if you will, that more so than it is like, again, a destination. I feel kind of similarly that, that, to that, that part there that you're not, I don't feel like I'm someone who brings original ideas to the to the table, I I try to synthesize other people's ideas and just kind of put them together and deliver them to people so that people can go do more research for themselves. What you just described, LB, was uh, it's very similar to what the artist formerly known as Vin Armani described on his uh, video series, the The Ascendant Project. Um, he talks about I've listened to an hour of Vin, which was when he was on Liberty Lockdown with Matt. Okay, well, this is from years ago. Yeah. And it's really insightful. He didn't come up with it, obviously. It's it's like ancient Indian stuff. It's based on their caste system. But uh, it follows this pattern where, like right now, we're living in an era or transitioning into an era where the priestly class, which in the modern age, the priestly class was the political scientists, the lawyers, the politicians, et cetera. The economists. The economist yeah. in particular too. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. that's the because that's the that's you know that's the that's the era that we lived in. But the priestly class in a religious society or a secular society always relies on their financiers because priests don't produce anything. Correct. They rely on the donations and the and the the basically superstition of their funders. And so eventually the priestly class gives way to the merchant class, which is what I think we're seeing. That's kind of what you just described. Hmm. That's okay. that's actually a part of a, a kind of a theory that I've been sort of putting together a little bit, in large part influenced by a guy named Jay Dyer, who LB, you would find him really interesting if you haven't heard of him. Okay. He is a absolute titanic intellect. He's an Orthodox Christian and he does a lot of of he does a lot of 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 uh, uh, proof of God debates. Mm. Uh, that was kind of how he got his name. I don't think he does them as much anymore, but he's he, I, I've never encountered someone who has read as much philosophy as he has and can argue it off the cuff. So I think he's someone you find really interesting. But one thing I've been kind of, I, I tweeted something the other day and I said uh, that, well, in the past, I've said that libertarianism and communism are only different in theory. And the, uh, the other thing I said recently is that communism and capitalism are two means to the same end. And this is part of this idea of, of liberalism being something that was created relatively recently. The, the school of liberalism is a thought. And it didn't just kind of emerge out of the ether. There's a, there's, I don't know if this is something characteristic of just our generation or if this is something about humans in general, but 
there's this tendency to kind of view things that happened before us before us as things that just kind of happened and there wasn't we don't we don't place them in their historical context. We don't understand this happened because of this, because of this, because of, in large part just because our brains can't contain all of that. We can't sit down and tr- trace, you know, cause effect all the way back at at um, into in, in infinity because you have to feed yourself. You know, you have to go do something. So, liberalism was a an ideology conceived by the aristocracy, and it was conceived by an aristocracy that was. Uh, close in a lot of senses with a merchant class. A merchant class being a a class that was gaining in power relative to the declining in power monarchies or or sovereign uh, nations and nation states. And the merchant class had an incentive to break down barriers to trade. Mm -hmm. So so, uh, monarchs would use tariffs as a way of preventing other uh, other other nations or other people groups from coming into their region and plundering them under the ASEAN, hey, we're, we're peaceful, but coming in and like undermining their their wage um, ability or that type, that type of thing. So monarchs that was one motivation for monarchs to to engage in forms of protectionism. It's because they're, they're protecting their country from people who who are uh, have have ill intent, and the merchant class had a strong incentive to see those sorts of trade barriers come down because their ability to make money depended on that. So this wasn't um this wasn't like uh people that were just out of the goodness of their heart like all oh, these poor all these poor poor people you know we just, yeah. we need to have open trade. It's it's the same as the thing with taxation. You get the well, right, you get the, the, same, the it's also the same reason why we it's also, it's also the same the, yeah, sorry. It's also the same reason why, like, a parliament developed, why the House of Lords was developed, why the king has a court, is you have one guy who said, yeah, I, I, you know, like, from in an evolutionary sense, you have one guy who says, this is all mine. And then you have a few other guys say, like, but hang on, isn't some of this mine, too? Because I helped you with this. And then you have a few more people who are like, hey, you guys have kind of been sitting on your butts, and now this stuff is mine, but you say it's yours, and I want more of it. And so yeah. you, and as those people gain power, there's, uh, there's another, there's a component that misses, that, that I think, is not necessarily missing from your from your analysis, but it but bears thought, which is also which is the degree to which technology advances these things forward as well. Right? That was like that it's, was it's, the next part of it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Then sorry. Then to, sorry. Then to step on you, but no, I, no, I, no, I, no, I no think worries. I think this is the natural extension of rights in a sense, right? Like, cause I, you know, like what, like, is there a good working definition for a right? The only thing I can come up with is something that's taken as a given, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's just something that is presupposed that this should be. And everything else is just kind of window dressing on that very on that very core context. And if you look at the history of humanity, you'd basically see the idea of rights being extended to more and more people. We can say in a culmination of what we might call the liberal order, where everybody is a sovereign individual. And, you know, I do think that that is a very I do think that's still a decent ideal. We can you know, we can argue about that, I suppose. But there is kind of to the point of like, you know, Locke put forward the tabula rasa without understanding evolution. Like we kind of understand today, and certainly we've witnessed this in the aftermath of 2020, 
is the and, and really not even 2020, 2016 and then 2020, right? Because 2016, you saw the left break, you saw the left uncouple from reality because they didn't because the press didn't the press couldn't take responsibility for the fact that they got Donald Trump elected, and moreover, they they had to maintain their control over it. And then in 2020, you had the right break from reality because obviously, obviously, he was supposed to be he was supposed to win the thing that he was going for, and you know, and so this is this is clearly a problem. And oh my gosh, don't you see that there are bad things happening in these different places? It's like yes, all of these things have always been occurring. You're just now paying attention to it. Why? Well, fundamentally, because of the diff, because of the degree to which technology has changed. This is where the generational understanding really has to come into play here because I, this is this is a this is a hundred percent true and a hundred percent personal. This just happened to my family this week. Um, you know, with this Cuba situation, my family has been a little more you know active on social media, and my younger sister posted uh like like shared the president's statement to the people of Cuba where he said he stands with them but I'm not going to do anything because like it should be easy to give them Wi-Fi, right? That just, I don't know the technical aspects of it, but if somebody wants to tell me, everybody's been floating this idea. It seems very easy. Here's my point. She shared the post and commented saying like, it's not authoritarianism, it's communism. Like this, like communism is the evil that has rotted this island and all the good things that you're supposed to say and all the true things about what's actually happening to the people in Cuba. It's not a fucking embargo, people. Like it's, it's so, and like she says that and then, my um my grandmother comments on that saying like it's such a shame that you would share joe biden's words i can't believe you would do that he's a liar <laughs> there is like legitimately there like people who are older do not understand i wrote a piece where i said you know you can drive you know it's it's one thing to be able to drive a car asking asking somebody over a certain age to use a platform like facebook is like asking somebody who's only ever ridden a horse to land a fighter jet. That's that's what you're asking somebody to do on a daily basis. And yet millions of people are working in these platforms thinking they're getting information. And again, literally, here is my sister criticizing Joe Biden, right? But my grandmother, as she's sipping her, you know, liberal tears daily collar mug, is saying, How dare you share the words of Joe Biden? She died like it doesn't even connect, man. And it's like it this drives me insane because I witness it and I try to have a conversation about it in the family. And and there's just no, you know, there's no conversation to be had because they're not interested. Nobody's interested in, in hearing about their shortcomings. But it like this is a real thing that that a lot of people are experiencing right now. It was interesting that you said you talked about how the right and the left both broke from reality at the same time. And it's interesting that you framed it that way because uh, if the left and the right both broke from reality, then what was reality? What reality was, is mediated through the individual. Right. Yeah. Right. So right there, you know, all these individuals all, you know, all individually broke from reality all at the same time. And, yeah. And it, 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 there, there's, it, it's the individualist perspective, I think, is just insufficiently explanatory, ultimately, at, at, at uh really understanding on a pragmatic level how human civilizations evolved. And I think that you're, there's this progression, this social cycle theory about history that it goes through these cycles. And what I, what I see with that is natural cause and effect based on incentives. That mm -hmm. uh, like LB, you, you, you got into some of it there. You have the first person that starts off, then you have the response to him, then you have the response to the response, then you have the response to the response to the response, the response to the response, you know, all the way on down. And you can map that sort of thing out because you start seeing there's trends that when someone is faced with this incentive, 
this is what they choose. This is how they act. And because that's how they acted, the next person faced with that decision is more likely to to, to make that same decision because they get that story in their head. People begin to embody the narratives that they understand about themselves, that they've been told about themselves. So when they're so to the left and to the right, they didn't depart reality. Everyone else did. They mm-hmm. kept reality with them and everyone else departed it. And yes. this is happening on on it, it's 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 starting to fragment and things are starting to we're getting to the point where you know, eventually everyone's going to have their own reality. And mm-hmm. This is the this is the full realization of the sovereign individual worldview. This is the inevitable conclusion of it. And what I was trying to get at with the merchant thing is that mm-hmm. when you have a sovereign when when you're the basis for your civilization is sovereign individual, can you come up with a presupposition or or, or an axiomatic position that would be better for business than that? You've just created right. that. That system exists for that reason, because mm-hmm. there was pressure by invested people to break down the barriers that maintain humans in groups so that they can create more customers for themselves. The sovereign individual conception ultimately pits parents against children and husbands against wives and fathers against uh, against children. It, it, it inevitably sets you as each potentially in competition for scarce resources because you are sovereign individuals. Mm-hmm. There, when you've broken society down to that point, I think it's inevitable that you're going to get a situation like this because humans aren't individuals. Humans are ultimately a product of their environment. They can choose what that environment is going to be, but they're going to be a product of it. And humans naturally imprint upon each other. For, for a child, when, when a child is born... They don't. They they bring something with them. You you mentioned tabula rasa. They bring something with them, but by the time they're aware enough to begin making decisions for themselves, so to speak, they have already been imprinted upon by their culture. You're not going to see someone in Seattle behaving like a bushman from the Kalahari who was brought up there. They're not going to do that. Right. They're not going to behave like someone born on a, a a spacecraft. You know orbiting Jupiter. They're not going to act like someone like that. They're going to act like someone from Seattle and specifically someone from their neighborhood in Seattle, someone from their um, economic class in Seattle. Human beings are imprinted upon by the society around us. And then we go out and we participate in it. So our action is informed firstly by the, the, I guess you would call it like the collective consciousness of the society that preceded us. And where did that come from? When, when you start tracing this back, you see that there is, there is an inevitability to events. And you can see the, the incentive structures baked into our, our, our social systems. Yeah, I, I think I, I completely agree with you. Um, I don't know that I'm going to reject individualism, though, because I think it's resolvable into the group, right? You know, and we start, you know, we're okay. I want to, I'll take this from a more economic Misesian understanding of it. But Mises wasn't making the strictly economic case, he was talking about the natural logic of human incentive. So I think, again, I, I completely agree with you that we are born into a certain time, right? Like if you drop somebody in a different place, they're going to be they're going to be different as a consequence, right? I think, um, you know, I think probably everybody here at one point or another has contended with the fact of what would I have been like 
if I was born in a place like Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia in the early days, right? And probably most of the people listening are also also had that thought. And I think contending with that thought has certainly been a huge animating part of me of like, well, I'm not going to be the one that follows. Like I'm going to look for when things are going bad and I'm going to be the one that says something. And I will, I will choose, um, I will choose to, I will choose to die on my feet as opposed to live on my knees and to serve, to serve something like that. It bears further thought. I would even be willing to say the cons, the principle of a sovereign individual is war is worth questioning. I don't know that that negates individualism or the Christian idea, if we will, of treating people as individuals and treating people as you would, you know, as you would want to be treated. Because I think, and I think we can operate on both levels. And I put it, and I put it this way, right? So I think that the the ever present monolith is o- always exists in our minds, and it's like it's in the amygdala. I've been saying it. Hope I hope to God I'm right, right? That's the fear center of the brain. That's the fight or flight, if if memory serves. That's where we get the basic distinction of us versus them. Are you par- are you with us or are you against us? Our capacity for reason allows us to build off of this ever-present monolith and give us a more sophisticated understanding of the world. It's the difference between a strict number line and to bring somebody that you talked about before, a Cartesian plane. We can do a lot more mathematically with a Cartesian plane than we can with a strict number line. It doesn't mean that either is necessarily valid or invalid. I think, I, I think um, I've said, you know, I've, I've defined skepticism in many ways, but one of the ways I say is there's at least two ways of doing everything. And that's kind of part of the problem is we see this, we see this trend play out. We've always had these debates within society. It was the Epicureans versus the Stoics. It was the Gnostics versus the uh, versus the the Catholics. It was the Anglican. It was the Calvinites versus the free will people. These sorts of conversations have always been had throughout human history. I truly do view it at right now. I'm happy to be changed. My mind to be changed with better evidence is a consequence of human temperament. And there seems to be something about society when it reaches a certain level that you actually need these conflicting temperaments in order to operate at a, at, at, at a higher structure, right? I think we would all agree that if we didn't have the current crop of elites that we do have, who have the ability and the technical control that they do, we would be engaging in a natural deflationary and decentralization uh, process, right? Because these, because these things have happened at different points in human history in the past. You had the Roman Empire and then you had Christendom, which rose about in the aftermath of the Roman Empire, what today we call Europe, which was a bunch of, which was a bunch of kings squabbling over pieces of ground and especially in like places like Germany, right? So I think we would be kind of naturally entering into this cycle in that we can understand a life cycle of society. Again, going back to they have to do this to maintain their control. I think there's a lot of people trying to do everything they can to prevent those natural, like the natural forces. I think, um, I think uh, Stephen is your co-host's name. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. I saw him put this out there and he's completely right when he tweeted it, which was we are like, and I, I feel this myself living in a state like Illinois is there over the next few years, there's a natural segregation that is going to happen in this country where people who are ostensibly left-wing and right-wing will be moving to other states or you're going to shut your dang mouth and be quiet about who you are because you won't have any friends. You won't have any friends left, 
Um, I, I do think, I, I, like I said, I think that's part of this natural decentralization tendency that we're all feeling. Like I've got family members who never thought they'd be leaving the state of Illinois who are moving to Texas right now, who are talking about moving to Texas because like half their family has now moved, extended family has now moved down there because, you know, at least it's marginally freer than, than a place like Chicago or Colorado, you know, these types of things are kind of happening all around us and it's, um, and it's important to remember them. There's been this parallel happening where there's a centralization happening on one hand while there's a decentralization happening on the other. You're getting a like a centralization of power coupled with a decentralization of technology, perhaps. Or maybe it's something, maybe it's something other than that. I'm not sure. But because we're we're gonna, you're right, we're gonna get this this segregation of of people returning to their tribes. And that's that's one thing I, I to, to make my position clear, just for anyone listening, I don't, I, I don't uh, subscribe to the individualist perspective or the collectivist perspective. I kind of, I kind of reject the categorization. I think that it, I don't, I don't have it fully worked out, but I think that it, there's something, there's something, uh, there's something in the presuppositions of it that I, um, I think something about the presuppositions is too materialist for me. I think is probably what it, what it is. Um, there's a there's a there's a, a a bug in there that I'm trying to suss out, but ultimately I would say that uh, that humans are neither individualist nor collectivist; they're tribal, and I think that's a different thing. I don't think that's Entirely, collectivist, yes. and I don't think it's individualist. Mm-hmm. They're they're tribal, and and for that reason, we're kind of returning to a on on one hand we're returning to a more tribal state, but it's within a completely different context because now there's going to be a global technocratic government. You're not going to have the same you're not going to have the same quality of freedom of movement. It's going to, it's going to have a, it's going to be different in a, in a qualitative sense. And uh, yet at the same time, if you're, if you're smart, if you're wise, if you've applied yourself, if you take advantage of technology in the right way, you can also effectively make yourself invisible within it. So you can, you, you can be as if there is, the as if the that global technocracy doesn't exist, but again, it it requires that you're making the right decisions and you're acting in a way that's concordant with that. Um, so I uh, I think that there's I, I see these these trends that keep repeating themselves, and I think that you can you can suss out larger larger narratives from them. But one of my favorite concepts that I was just exposed to recently is a concept of an egregore. Which is a uh, I saw you tweet this. I didn't the, chase the, the, it down though. Right? Yeah. The, the The concept is that like there's a uh, that I, I how would I explain this? It's like ideas are actually non physical beings, um, and an idea is is actually a uh, in the in a metaphysical realm. It's actually a a like a being. And so then when you get the the that phrase, um, what is it that Young Young said that uh, people don't have ideas; ideas have people. Sure, and yeah, yeah, so yeah. so Egregore is an occultist. Um, well, and the, uh, an- term. the ancient Greeks thought that the passions were literally things that overtook you, right? It's that's right. why Cupid's arrow strikes you and you're in love. It's because the gods were playing with you and pushing your pushing these emotions on you so that you become so that you so you're literally overtaken with them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what's no, interesting I've, is that the real quick the Orthodox Christian perspective mm-hmm. is that. That is when it's when when they they when Christianity when it talks about being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that's what it's a reference to. It's that exact concept. So when it says the body of Christ, when it talks about the body of the church being the body of Christ, 
It mm-hmm. means that in, in that literal sense. Yeah. Um, it's not just metaphorical. It's actually in that literal sense. That was fascinating to me that you have this occultist concept and then that's actually present in uh, the biblical sense and from the, from the Orthodox mm-hmm. perspective. Those two things going together, I think, yeah, I think there's deeper truth there to, to be James, dug into. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's pretty, that, that, that jives with Catholicism. Yeah, it's the main difference between the apostolic faiths, the, the Catholic Church in the West and the Orthodox churches in the East, and Protestantism, where there is no concept of the church. To a Protestant, the church is either some vague, nebulous, anybody who you know confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord, or it's your local community of Christians. There's not a, like an embodiment of Christ indwelled by the Holy Spirit like you just described, Matt. And to me, that's something that's completely lacking. And it is something that resulted in what we now have in America. There's a Catholic blogger named Mark Shea, um, and I think he's quoting somebody else, and it might be Chesterton, I don't remember. Uh, But he says, in America, everyone is Protestant, even the Catholics. And it especially especially (laughs) goes for the woke. The problem is they have lost the concept of the ultimate scapegoat in Christ. And Mm. so now they're just willing to scapegoat anybody. Um, It gets back to to Gornowski's, uh, and and obviously Gerard's mimetic theory, where we need a scapegoat. If no one's the scapegoat, everyone is the scapegoat. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's so dangerous to have this sacrifice-less religion because then everybody, you sacrifice whatever. And it's completely arbitrary who's allowed to be redeemed and who's going to be placed on the altar. That's part of the reason that I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea that we're headed toward more than just your typical fourth turning. You know, we're headed to like a fourth turning of fourth turnings. Well, and if you get Vin Armani's, that's not Vin Armani's original thought of the cyclical history, uh, from so you go from the priestly class to the to the merchant class, and of course merchants rely on consumers and laborers, and so at some point that populist uprising overtakes that merchant class that's the that's the in charge you know for that time, and that's what I kind of LB you were talking about it earlier the the left lost track of reality in 2016 the right lost track of reality in 2020, I mean maybe this cycle is going to be super fast. And that tracks with integral theory that each of these phases of history are going faster and faster and faster because each individual, as someone experiencing the various stages of development, the same way that that the global historical man has experienced these stages of development through history, the individual has to experience these, these levels of development in their own person. And so it has to go faster and faster and faster and faster. It helps that we have longer lifespans now, but... uh, Well, and we're also incredibly rich, mm -hmm. right? Like for whatever else might be happening, a turning, a turning, a cyclical cycle, we are the richest humans to have ever existed. Mm -hmm. And like, again, like the cracks are there, right? Uh, If anybody else is a Doctor Who fan, you know, the, the Matt Smith arc involves a lot of cracks in the walls and it's these cracks of reality that all has to get put back together in this beautiful arc that Stephen Moffat did um, before the show went to crap. The cracks in the wall, but like that's what we're seeing with like the thin blue line flag. That's what we're seeing with the autonomous zones. That's what we're Mm. seeing with empty store shelves everywhere in the country. 
everywhere in the country, massive disruptions in the la- massive disruptions due to shortages across all across every sector of the economy, right? Like these things are happening, and yet we're still as rich as we've ever been, which is why, which is one of the reasons why I don't think you see the uprisings in the streets that you would expect to see if you were to look at other points in human history. We're very comfortable. I understand what you're saying when you say uh, the we're very rich. I would argue we're very rich, but we're not wealthy. Yeah, sure. Because yeah, yeah. because so much of that that richness is was is debt. So it was it's it's not true wealth. It's it's uh it's it's pulled been pulled forward uh, from it's it's consumption future consumption that's been pulled forward. But ultimately, um, it's kind of like it's been it's predicated on the idea that we're going to somehow uh, conquer the problem of scarcity at some point, and we're going to be able to pay all of this back. But uh, that's 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 not coming, and I think this is part of the with the capitalism and communism being two wings of the same bird. It's mm-hmm. you use capitalism to get yourself to this point, and then it's communism for everyone else coming up behind you. And this is the way that the capitalists consolidate their wealth um, after basically after pilfering the entire. This is this is basically what would happen if you took the merchants and put them in charge of the country. You replace the king with the merchant, and of course, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to drown the country country in debt and then just squeeze every last little bit out of it and then take off away from it. That's kind of the the that's the the the, tra- the trajectory of where we're heading and I'm so I'm not completely sure. I don't know exactly what to expect here. I really would wouldn't be surprised by um you know a fourth turning of fourth turnings. I also wouldn't be surprised by some some sort of something happening that just diffuses all the all the tension and suddenly there's a kind of a uh, an awakening or a realization of mm-hmm kind of like a self-actualization of the collective consciousness or something like both sure. of those are both not completely out of the question for me. I've got to take off here real, real quick. I wanted to say one other thing, um, which was that uh, just an a address um, was something that popped into my head as, as James, you were talking about how everyone in uh, America is Protestant, even the Catholics, which I think that's <laughs> freaking hilarious. Uh the I mentioned this parallel of of religion and politics moving um, um, alongside each other uh, throughout the last however long of history, and when you look at the Protestant perspective versus the Apostolic Church's perspective, there's a direct parallel there to anarchism connected to statism, hmm. where the 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 Protestant perspective is basically. We don't need a state interpreting our constitution for us. Each one of us can read the constitution ourselves and apply it in our own lives. This is the same exact same phenomenon on both sides. Gee, so Matt, that's something I that, that's a realization I've been avoiding for 10 years. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah, is where yeah, so yeah. I mean I came from I was a Seventh-day Adventist growing up. So I was like that, that's like it's like it's like semi-Pelagian. It's it's yeah. it's it's yeah. not uh so it's funny. My family is, has moved from that. They're moving kind of to the um, reformed direction. And right at the exact time that my family is sort of settling on, on reformed, my, uh, like my sister's going to like a Bible college and everything. Uh, my dad and I both simultaneously without being aware of it, we each began digging into Eastern Orthodoxy at the same time. Hmm. And we were doing it for two or three months before we started talking to each other about it and realized that we were basically at the exact same point, having listened to all the exact same people and it, it was it was surreal. So he and I have been both working through this podcast called the Lord of Spirits podcast, which is two Orthodox priests. It's really it's been they spend a lot of time in the Book of Enoch, 
and they talk about giants a lot. Um, they they talk about the Nephilim, and it's been fascinating. It's 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 very much as a as a growing up as a Protestant, and and a a very not not just a Protestant, but one of the youngest Protestant um, uh, denominations yeah. there is. It's a whole new world. It's a whole new world that I never even understood. The like all the church fathers and the original mm-hmm. like original like debates over the all the different councils and all the stuff is all stuff that there was zero emphasis whatsoever on knowing or understanding or have anything to do with that. And and so that just it, it's like it's like an entirely new world woke um woke itself up to me. And it happens to map perfectly to a bunch of the political realizations that I was having uh at the same time. So it's been a it's been kind of a euphoric experience for me. That's great. No, oh, I love it. I think it's great. I think James and I both just had a simultaneous and parallel flashbacks to our, uh, you know, Catholic school upbringing and all boys high school. And <laughs> you got the exact opposite experiences yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, we were kind of, you know, we were we were raised with the church fathers. Well, yeah, I definitely just wanted to make sure we hit two hours personally. So yeah, uh, thanks. <laughs> I would love to do this again. By the way, yeah, I, I could keep great. going forever. And this has been great, and we didn't even delve into wealth, power, and influence. Uh, well, I think well, let's, I was just going to say, I was kind of, I was like, let's bring it back to the hook because we talked a lot about what the future might be, but let's talk about what you should do right now, which yeah. is make sure you're in a position to take care of your, okay. Like I'll say it this way. If you're a man and you're not ma- if you're not taking steps to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and your family and the people you care about, mm-hmm. then you are not living up to who you're supposed to be as a person, especially if you claim that you believe in the ideals of freedom and liberty. Because if you're not in a position to help yourself, you're not in a position to help anybody else. Yeah. And so for whatever else we might experience over the next few years, if people in this space are focusing, if people who are interested in these ideas that we're bringing forward are focusing on making themselves a better person, it will freaking happen. It's like, I've given my personal testament of this a few times, but I will do it again. Like when I stopped caring about the money coming in, suddenly I've made more money than I've had. Like literally I'm making more money and it's not even that much. It's, It's not even that much. You know, it's just a little bit in comparison of what I could make, but I'm making more money than I've ever made as a consequence of focusing on doing things that bring me joy, focusing on things that make me money as a consequence and building the skill set that I have. It's like that that's the hook. That is what you do. That is applying liberty. I mean that with all sincerity in the tweet that I sent out. Yes, it was also to make sure that we could get on a show together, Matt, but it also meant it. That's the nice part about it. That's the beauty of an authentic content creator such as Absolutely. I am. Right? Like it's literally like it's li- it literally works and it's literally true. So apply liberty and work on making yourself better. And if you're not interested, don't fucking listen to me and don't follow me on Twitter because I don't care. Like <laughs> here, here. Speaking of following you on Twitter, LB, why don't we use that as an opportunity for you to plug? And we can Absolutely. I am the mind, if you didn't know already, behind the Been Awake Project for Better Sense Making, where I write and do a show where we try to explore ideas such as we're talking about now. There's some stuff we didn't get into, like my pantheonic approach, which kind of ties to some of the stuff Matt was bringing up there in the end. But we're going to have to save that for a new conversation. Please, please, please subscribe with your email address. I'm offering a lifetime discount of 50% before the one-year anniversary of it. So if you join me now before you know the stuff is, frankly, better than you could ever imagine something being from a guy who has no college degree. Um, I would highly appreciate that, but please at the very least subscribe with your email. Follow me on Twitter at the LB Moniz. Thank you so much, sir. Matt, go ahead. That was great. 
Thanks for this, guys. This has been a lot of fun. I can't wait for for round two. Uh, this is this. These are the types of conversations that I'm I'm most interested in. This is the type of stuff that I I, uh, I have the most fun with, and that I think is ultimately the most productive. And I I just I I want to to double stamp everything that LB just said, and and I'll just add this that uh, liberty isn't something that you ask for. It's something that you create. And you create it in your life. And once you've created it in your life, you can spread it to others or you can teach them how to create it in their life. That is the movement that is, is, uh, should be the praxis in the liberty movement. It has to go somewhere. It goes toward you taking control of your own life, which starts with taking control of the source of your income, making that income mobile, and then finding a community of like-minded people and, and, and attaching your interests to that community. Because wealth is something that you generate vertically and you generate it horizontally. You can have it, the really cheesy way of saying it is that um, wealth is, is, um, can be in your net worth and also your network. That would be the, the that would be the 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 super cheesy like uh, <laughs> wow internet marketing podcast one hundred and one yeah right yeah. <laughs> right so 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 the reason I, I do it I make it more more philosophy e and I say you can do it vertically or horizontally those are both valid means of of uh, accumulating wealth ideally you want to do it you want both so you want to grow your wealth vertically and network yourself with people who are also growing their wealth vertically that's that's that is what will create liberty in the future. If you think about even, I'll I'll do this one little aside. With a political party, if you want to accomplish something, the first thing that you have to do is get funding for it. Mm -hmm. Everything starts with the money. Whoever has the money dictates everything else. Everything is downstream within society, within the context of politics. It's downstream from whoever is investing the money wherever. So, the, I've said the future of the liberty movement is in business, education, and entertainment. And education and entertainment are subsets of business. It's ultimately about business. So uh, the, that's what we talk about on Wealth, Power, and Influence with Jason Stapleton. Uh, every episode uh, goes live on Monday, uh, every Monday. And we stream our, 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 the show every Wednesday to our private group. You can go to mynomad.network if you want to join that. And then King Pilled is uh, my podcast that I do with Stephen Messina. Uh, we stream every day, every every Monday and Thursday, uh, usually 1 p.m. Uh, uh, Pacific. Uh, you can follow us on YouTube at King, uh, just King Pilled on YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Real King Pilled. Um, and we'll be up on all the podcatchers here one of these days. I keep saying it's going to happen and it'll happen <laughs> when I have the time. So all for right. now, just YouTube and Twitter. Perfect. Thanks so much, guys. Let's do it again. Thanks, James. All right. Thanks again to LB and Matt for joining me this evening. I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. I love talking to those two guys, and I know that we are going to be doing it again very, very soon. And I believe the next conversation we have will be on LB's feed. So, of course, head to LB's Substack to subscribe there so that you never miss an episode of his stuff. One thing to note, I'm finally releasing premium content in the form of early episodes. This interview with Matt and LB was actually released as soon as Zoom spit it out after it was done processing the recording. The Zoom recording included some pre-show banter between the three of us that you didn't get to hear on this track, and the people who received it received it several days early. They got it last Friday, and you are getting it on either Wednesday or Thursday of this week, depending on when I hit publish. So if you are interested in getting these interviews a few days to a few weeks early, and including the pre-show banter between me and the guests, then head to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up for the $7 per month or $70 per year paid feed, 
And if you are content with being a freeloader, that's perfectly fine too. Head to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address and nothing more, and you will receive every piece of free content that I release, including episodes as they are published on the podcast feed. However you support the show, you know I appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in this time. And until next time, live free. Thank you.